then, because the overriding focus, as John presents it, or as Jesus makes those claims, is certainly he's a, they are claims of deity. In every one of them, he's making some kind of claim of deity, and there's analogy to the Old Testament. You remember when Moses said, who should I send? And, G- and God said, just tell him I am sent you. And, and Jesus is clearly claiming that he is God in those. But there's also another analogy that comes out in them is that the idea not only is he make the, the I am sayings that is a claim of deity, but Isaiah picks up on something else that there's a tie to he's the Savior. Listen in Isaiah 43.10. He says, even I am the Lord and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and save and proclaim I am God. Even from eternity, I am he and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? I am he. I am the first and I am also the last. But we're going to actually take even a different focus today because I want to show that even that in the midst of his claiming to be the deity being God and claiming to be the savior of the world, what we're really what I want to look at and we're going to be really fast, okay, is that Jesus is claiming that there's a theme of real life is found in Jesus. He makes the claim that Apart from him, you're not going to have real life. And so we're going to see that, that although all these claims are of deity, he is not only claiming to be fully God, he is claiming to be fully life itself. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at these I am saying from that perspective. Um, John records seven, and we're going to um, just look at them at the order that they come in the Gospel of John. So... um, if you'll take with me in your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6 is where we pick up the first saying. Um, and we're just going to go through them in the order that we find them in the Gospel of John. Um, and we're going to be looking, starting off in John chapter 6, verse 32 through 35. The context the context here is Jesus had just fed the 5,000 the day before. And he's now in Capernaum. He's in the synagogue there. And there's a bunch of people there. They're looking still for free food, okay? And Jesus, much like the conversation he has with the woman at the well, she was looking for little water. He's talking about spiritual water. Jesus is going to be talking about spiritual food. These guys are looking for real fish and bread. And so Jesus has to be really blunt with them and simply say, no, I am that bread. So pick it up with me in verse 32 as I read. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus said to them, oh, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Um, the, the, The word, the phrase bread of life here literally means the bread which provides life. Okay, and, and notice in verse 32, he refers to it as true bread. That's in contrast to the bread that the world has to offer, the bread that their Pharisees were offering to them. Okay, Jesus is claiming that he is the only source of eternal life and real spiritual nutrition, nourishment comes from him. The word comes and believes are in the present term tense. So they says the one who continually comes, the one who continually believes, is the one who can partake of that bread, okay? And so the focus here is on coming continually and continually believing and continually, and it's only that person who will experience the benefits of not being hungry. 
I love the analogy that MacArthur made on this in his commentary, and he made the analogy to physical eating, okay? And he says, and this is his analogy, he says, food is useless unless it's actually taken in. Knowing about food doesn't do you any good, okay? Seeing a piece of steak there, if you don't partake, if it doesn't do you any good. Same thing here. Knowing about the Word of God doesn't do you any good. He says eating is prompted by hunger, at least for most of you, certainly is for me, Okay? A lot of times we don't get into this because we're just playing on our hungry. Okay. He said the food actually becomes a part of the person who eats it. I can certainly attest to that. Okay, The same is true. And we're going to look at that as we go to verse 56. This actually becomes a part of the one who eats it. Food involves an element of trust, he says. One, only, one trusts that the food is good and will not harm them. That's why there are certain foods okra I don't eat. It's not good for me, okay, and other kinds of stuff, but okay. And finally, he said, eating is personal. I can't eat for you, and you can't eat for me. I can't go to home group for you. You can't come to church for me, okay, and the same thing is true here, okay. But then let's pick it up at verse 30, 56, because Jesus actually states the one who eats of him is the one who abides or remains in him. And I want to look at that briefly because that word abides, those of us who are in the home group have seen it over and over and over again in the epistle. It's one of John's favorite words, and obviously he got it from Jesus. But what's first interesting here, the particular word that Jesus uses for eat here, and he uses it three times in 56, in 57, and in 58, it's different than what he's been using the other times for eating. And in fact, this word here is the exact same word that you would use to refer to a cow chewing its cud. A good translation would be munch. He's munching on it, okay? In other words, it's not just something he eats it and, and, and digests, but he's really mauling over it, just unless a cow continually eats over that and chews its cud. And it's in the present tense, okay? Okay? But I want to look at this word abides because those of us who are in the home group have seen this a bunch of times. Jesus says, the one who eats of me, that's the one who abides in me, and that's the one who I abide in. And so what, the, what does he mean by eating here? Well, if we go to 1 John, we're going to see a bunch of times where he talks about you abide in me and I abide in you, and we get an idea of what he means by eat. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, he says, the one who abides in him ought to walk like him. 1 John two twenty four says, if his words abide in you, you will abide in him and he will abide in you. Chapter 3, verse 34, if we keep his words, he abides in us. Chapter 4, verse 15, if we confess Jesus is the Son of God, he abides in us and he in God. Chapter 4, verse 16, if we abide in love, he abides in us and God abides in him. So what is eating of Jesus? It's confessing, loving, keeping his word and walking like him. That's what he means. It is fully partaking of Jesus who claims to be life itself. In other words, Jesus is clearly talking about fully eating of him, partaking of him, so that it becomes part of you, much like the analogy that MacArthur gave. And that's what it means when he is the bread of life. He is that bread that supplies nourishment. And you know what? The culmination of this, John writes about in the book of Revelation. If you turn with me to Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 and 17. We'll just read 16 and 17. And John writes, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor there be any heat. For the Lamb is in the center of the throne, and the Lamb 
will be their shepherd. And the Lamb will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know what? Because God will be your food. God will be your nourishment. But Jesus is saying that process can start today. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven. And so as the bread of life, Jesus is, in addition to a claiming of deity, he's claiming to be the only source of real nourishment. All right, flying along, John chapter 7, excuse me, John chapter 8, verse 12. We pick up the next I am saying. And this comes in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles had a lot of symbolism. One of the symbols, and we'll see another one later on as we come to it, but is lights. Lights had a significant role in the Feast of Tabernacles. They, they would carry lights around in these candles as all as they were walking from the Pool of Siloam up to the temple. And right in the middle of this ceremony, in chapter 12, 8, verse 12, Jesus announces, and Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Clearly, this is a claim to deity. Those in, in, the, in the home group, in chapter 1 of 1 John, John declared God is light. Okay, And so Jesus is clearly claiming deity here. And you'll remember that in the Old Testament, light was the very glory of the presence of God. Remember, it was the cloud and the pillar of light that would lead the Israelites. Um, Isaiah says in Isaiah 60, verse 19, The sun will no longer be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And so clearly it's a claim to deity. But I think even here Jesus is claiming even more than that. He is claiming more than just to be the light, because here he actually says, I am the light of the world, not just light, like we see in the gospel, in the epistle. And in fact, in the prologue to the, to the gospel of John, in verse 1, verse 4 of chapter 1, John says, Jesus is the light of men that came. In the Old Testament, we saw there was, a, among many other things, there, light is analogy to a number of things, and, and just two are worth noting here. Um, David makes the connection between light and salvation. Psalms 27.1, it says, The Lord is my light and he's my salvation. And so David connects light with salvation. I think there's another one, and I think it's the one that Jesus is bringing out here, is one in Psalms 119.105. It says, The word of God, the law of God, is a light to guide the path of those who cherish his instruction. So we see that light is a, is a, is a guide. And that's what John is talking about here. It says, or excuse me, what Jesus is talking He who follows me will not walk in the darkness because he's in the light and will have a clue where he's going. Proverbs 6.23 says, teaching is light. Instruction is light. And so we see, and we saw this in 1 John, right? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus says, the one who does not love is the, is the one who's in the darkness and he walks around in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going and he's stumbling around. Jesus said the exact same thing here. So in a sense, not only is Jesus claiming to be light because God is light, but he's claiming to be that guide. And when I stay in the light, I know where I'm going. I can see the path, and he's that guide. Okay. But what is actually interesting here, if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you know what he said there? You are the light of the world. And here he claims that he is the light of the world. So how is that possible? How is it he's the light of the world, but then he says that we are the light of the world? I think what Jesus is saying, that as I walk in the light, 
I will have the light that produces life itself. And we ourselves will become the light to the world. And I can only be the light to the world as I stay in the light who was the light of the world. Which I think what John is saying. And in fact, Jesus makes this claim one more time. If you'll skip over to chapter 9, verse 5. And I think this is what he's hinting at to his disciples. In verse 5 of chapter 9, he says, I, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so in one sense, he's telling his disciples, you know, I'm about ready to leave. And guess what? Although I still am the light of the world, you're going to kind of be the light of the world now. And oh yeah, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And I think what he's saying is that he's the light of the world, but it's only as I stay in the light do I then myself become the light of the world. It doesn't do me any good if I don't stay in the light. Because then I'm like the one who's in the darkness wandering around and I have no clue where I'm going. So I think his claim to be the light of the world is that as I stay in that light, he wants me to then become the light of the world. Chapter 10, I know we're flying here, (coughs) but there's seven of them. Chapter 10, we see two of them. Um, The context here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Remember in chapter 9, he had just healed the blind, and they got into this argument, and Jesus ends up telling the Pharisees that they're a bunch of blind guides themselves. That didn't go over real well. And then we have the conversation here in verse 10, and Jesus makes two claims here. And we pick up the first one in verse 7. Jesus said to them that them would be the Pharisees who were just called blind guides. Okay, And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and they might have it abundantly or to its fullest. Okay. And clearly here there's a focus that Jesus is saying, I am the door. He's not a door. He's not one of many options. He is the door. Okay? We'll remember back Psalms 118, verse 19 through 21. It says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. And so the gate is that one only, there's only one gate, and it's the righteous who enters into it. However, I think there's another imagery here that Jesus is giving, not only is he the door, but there's the, con- there's the idea that behind the door is where you find security and safety. And when I'm behind the door, which is Jesus, that's where I will find security and sa- safety from the pressures and the temptations of the world. And I think that's what he's kind of hinting at in verse 9 when he says, and I don't know exactly what he means, he'll come and go. I don't know where we're coming and going. But the idea that you find pasture. Certainly in the Old Testament, pasture was a, was a place of security and safety. And we remember of Psalms 23, um, clearly he leads me to green pastures. And it's in green pastures where he restores me, he guides me, he comforts me. I don't need to fear. And so I think the analogy, as he's the door, I, I, he leads, and behind that door is where the green pastures are. And there's where security. And, and in fact, what he says, all the others... Who came before me, and it clearly has the Pharisees and all the false prophets in mind. He said they're really we're just robbers and thieves. They're here just to rip you off, okay? And and they can't be trusted. 
But behind the door, which is Jesus, that's where security is. Okay? And then he goes on to say in verse 10 is that he came that we might have life and we might have it to its fully, fullest. And part of the way that we experience life to its fullest is because of the security and the assurance that we have. Okay? And that's what John is saying in the epistle of 1 John. One of the reasons he wrote the book is so that we might know that we have eternal life. And then, as a result of knowing that, we can experience fellowship and joy and real life. Okay? And the one who is always on shaky ground is the one who can't experience it. And so Jesus is saying, behind the door, yes, he's the only door, but it's behind that door where you find security and where you find pastors. And so when one has removed himself from the security of being behind the door, being in fellowship with God's people, you cannot experience real life. You will be on shaky ground, is what he's saying. We pick up the next one here. Immediately following this, the same analogy, he's talking about sheep and shepherds. And in verse 11 through 15, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and he hits the road. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. In this passage, we see four times he talks about as a good shepherd laying down his life. We see that in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 18. In fact, I like what D.A. Carson said on this. He says, in fact, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. And so, and in fact, it is this love shown by laying down his life that seems to be what acts as the basis for the relationship that grows between the sheep and the shepherd. And it's how the sheep know the shepherd and the shepherd knows the sheep. Okay, And we see that here. He says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father. Why? Because I lay down my life for the sheep in contrast to the one who doesn't. In fact, it's this intimate knowledge that really is what allows the sheep to follow the shepherd. And guess what he says in verse 27? As a result of knowing the shepherd, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and guess what? They follow me. How do they follow him? Because they know his voice. And why do they know him? Because a relationship is developed because why? He laid down his life for them. He's not just a shepherd. He's the good shepherd. In fact, it is this ultimate manifestation of God's love for us that we see John using in his epistle as a motive for us to, re- to love. He says in 1 John four nineteen, we just saw this in our home group on Friday night, we love because he first loved us. How did he first love us? He laid down his life for us. But John takes it even farther And he says, this high standard of love shown by the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep, John uses it, is the the kind of love that his children should show to one another. In 1 John 4, in 1 John 3, 16, he writes, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. 
And guess what? We ought to lay down our lives for one another. We talked about that in our home group. I think those who are in the other one, that's what you'll be doing tonight. Chewing behind it. And so enjoy talking about that. But it's the high standard that John uses of the good shepherd laying down his life is the standard that he sets for us. The next I am is in chapter 11. The context is Lazarus has passed away. Martha and Mary are bummed out that Jesus wasn't there to keep him from dying. And Jesus is coming finally. He showed up a little late, but not late at his timetable. And he's having a conversation with Martha. And we pick it up in verse uh, 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, yeah, I know. I know that he'll rise on the re- in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And then he asked her, everyone who believes and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, Martha's thinking about, you know, that end time. And the last day, yeah, I know. When, when in the resurrection, everybody, all believers will be resurrected. In the, and Jesus is coming and say, and he's trying to divert her attention from the last day to a personal, no, I am the resurrection right now. And you don't have to wait to the last day. Okay, And so the association between experiencing the life of the age to come, which Martha was familiar with, and knowing that Jesus is that life right now. Okay, She had no clue that he was about, that Jesus was going to actually give her a practical illustration and raise her. Okay, So Jesus is saying that this life is not just eternal life that you can experience in the last day, but it's a new kind of life. And that's what resurrection, that's really the focus behind resurrection. For something to be raised, it had to what first? Die. Okay? And, okay? and that's what we see in the New Testament, right? That talks about um, there, was, there was death to an old way of life, and there was resurrection to a new kind of way of life. So not only is Jesus talking about, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And he's talking about, yes, he is talking about eternal life. But he's also talking about a new kind of life. Because he was about to raise Lazarus right now. Not in the last days. Okay? And he's going to give her a real practical illustration that this new life you can have today. You don't have to wait to the last day. Okay? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creature. Why? Because old things passed away. New things have come. I died to an old way of life, and I've been resurrected to a new way of life. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to drive home to Martha. That you don't have to wait to the last day to experience resurrection life. You can have that today. And so, and Lazarus is about to get it. Okay. In fact, Paul says that the best that the world has to offer, really, in Ephesians chapter two, verse one, is that even though you, we may be alive, we're really dead. The best that the world has to offer is really living dead. Okay. And Jesus' point here is that the new experience of new life can only be found in Him, and you don't have to wait to the last day to get it. Is what he's saying. He is the life, and we can experience that real life, and it's found in Jesus because he is that life. And it's associated with being resurrected to a new kind of life. 
The next one we see, the sixth one, is in John chapter 14. This is probably the one that we are most familiar with. And the, con- the context here is Jesus is in the upper room. He's just told his disciples that he's about to leave. And Thomas is the only one that is brave enough to ask, where are you going? Um, actually, um, and, and, and Jesus replies to him, yeah, you know where I'm going. And he says, I don't know where you're going. And Jesus responds in chapter, in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus responds by saying he is the only way. This is clearly one where he is claiming exclusively he is the only way to new life. And again, I like what D.A. Carson had to say on this. He says, Jesus is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and he is the life of God. And in fact, we see that as the truth of God, he is the supreme revelation of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it opens up in the first couple of verses. It says, in these last days, God has spoken to us and he's spoken to us in his son, who is the exact representation of God. Okay, so he is the truth of God. He is the exact representation. But he is also God's gracious self-disclosure to us. We see in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, he is the word made flesh. Okay. John, in the epistle, we haven't come to this yet, but in chapter 5, John declares, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So because Jesus is the life and he is the truth is precisely why he is the way to God. In other words, and Jesus himself in John chapter 17 verse 3 equates knowing God with eternal life. He says this is the eternal life that you may know me and the Father. Okay? So Jesus is saying he's not just a life, he is the life. And we were looking on Friday night in a home group about the number of different reasons why the Apostle John says that Jesus come. There's one additional one that we haven't gotten to, and it's the second to last verse in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And John says, Jesus came that we might know him who is both true and eternal life. Jesus is the way because he is the truth and he is the life. And if I want to know the way to God, I need to know the one who is true and the one who has life in himself. One final one. We're making good time here. And it's right there in John chapter 15. And Jesus is um, claiming to be the true vine. And this is in contrast to, to Israel who was uh, a worthless vine. Read with me in Isaiah chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5. Isaiah writes, Let me sing a song now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around it. He removed the stones. He weeded it. He planted it with the choice of the vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. He made a vine, wine vat in the middle of it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What was there more for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done? When I expected it to produce good grapes, it produced simply worthless ones. So now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with it. I will remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled. I will lay it waste. 
It will not be pruned, but briars and weeds and thorns will come up. And also the clouds, it's not going to rain on it anymore. So that vineyard is dead. And now Jesus comes in that context and says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. There are three characters in this analogy here. There is the vine. There is the vine dresser, the Father. And there are the branches. Believers are seen as the branches. And they are remain in the vine for the purpose of bearing fruit. The Father has the role of being the vine dresser who prunes it. I.e., he pr- And why is he pruned? So that the branches bear more fruit. But what else does he do? Those branches that don't bear any, he chops them off. In other words, those who are in the church and who have never experienced the transforming work of Christ on the cross. Okay? And what was interesting in Isaiah, he said, I'm not going to prune this thing anymore. And here now we have the Father's role. He's the pruner. Okay? The point that John is making here in verse 2, or that Jesus is making, excuse me, is that no true Christian was without some measure of fruit. Obviously, the primary measure of fruit, initial, is that of belief. Belief is a fruit. Okay? And in fact, we saw in 1 John that to leave the vine is to demonstrate that you were really never part of the vine to begin with. And what Jesus' point is here is that remaining or abiding, he uses that word a bunch of times in this passage here. If we read all the way down to verse 11, you'll see he uses it four or five times, um, is the only way of producing fruit. In fact, he says that in verse 4. Abide in me and I in you as a branch that cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, When I remove myself from the vine, I cannot bear any fruit. What was kind of interesting to me, and I'd never really dawned on me before, is not only do the branches derive their life from the vine, but in fact nowhere do we see that the vine really produces fruit. The vine uses the branches to produce fruit. But the branches only produce fruit as they abide and remain in the vine. Okay, And not just some, but a bunch. Okay? So the picture here is a really close relationship between the vine and the branches. The vine supplying the nutrition, the nourishment, the energy, the branches producing the fruit. Okay, And notice the fruit that he mentions here. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but just the ones that happen to come in this context. Verse 7, by abiding in him, effectiveness in prayer, we see in verse 7. Verses 9 and 12 Intimate love for God and his people. These are fruit of remaining in the vine. Verse 11, real joy. You don't have any real joy? Maybe you're not abiding in the vine. That's a fruit. Verse 14, abiding in the vine, and Jesus actually calls you his friend, being called a friend of Jesus. So we've seen. We've taken, I know this is a whirlwind tour. But we saw that Jesus is the bread of life. By bread, we're talking about he's the food and nourishment for life. He's the light of the world, which is the guide for the world. And as I stay in the light, we become light. He is the door. He's the only one that supplies real security for real life. As the good shepherd, he's the one who lays down his life for his children. 
as the resurrection and the life, there is a death to an old way of life and the resurrection to a new way of life. As the way, the truth, and the life, he's the only way. Precisely because he is the truth and the life. He is the true vine, the only means to bearing real fruit. So I want to kind of wrap this up and there's another claim that Jesus makes it's not an I am saying but it's his claim to be living water and he makes this a bunch of places he makes it to the woman at the well but we're going to look at the one in John chapter 7 so if you turn with me to John chapter 7 and verses 39 37 through 39 and let's set the context here again this is in the middle of the feast of tabernacles which had numerous water rites they would carry water filled with jars from the pool of Siloam up to the temple and they would pour them into these silver, silver bowls and they would be singing the halal the whole time, Psalms 113 through 118. And if you read those, there's a lot of water analogies in there. And the water is reminding the Jews of their provision of water in the Old Testament, in the desert, but also looking forward to the outpouring of the Spirit in these last days. And it's right in the middle of this feast that had all kinds of water rites that Jesus makes this claim. And he invites those who believe in him to come to him. And <coughs> although it's, these verses seem straightforward, when I started reading the commentaries on this, you know, where you put the, the periods and the commas, the, like D.A. Carson went on for at least, you know, 12 pages on this, and most of it way over my head. So I'm going to give you my best shot at what I think Jesus is saying here. And, I'm going to, and it really starts in verse 38. He says, He who believes in me, the one who is thirsty, let that one keep coming to me, and let that one keep drinking. And from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. What Jesus is saying here is that for those who believe, they need to keep coming. And they need to keep drinking. And when they keep coming, and when they keep drinking, then they will experience in them a spring of living water that will well up to eternal life itself. See, in the Old Testament, water was associated with the outpouring of the Spirit. John says that here in verse 39. John adds his commentary to what Jesus said. But John says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, which he was going to give. And so while it is true that all Christians received the Holy Spirit at, new, at birth, Paul tells us that clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. I think what Jesus is saying here is that only those who regularly keep coming to him and keep drinking will experience the blessings of the Spirit signified by water. Living water also has another connotation in the Old Testament and it has the idea of newness or being made clean as a result of his Spirit living in you. Listen to what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart, <coughs> a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And I think what Jesus is saying here is as only as I continually keep coming, keep drinking, keep eating, will I experience 
the blessings of the Spirit that He's given me, and that will well up in itself to be a spring of eternal life. See, on the one hand, we are already clean. I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus had with Peter in the upper room. Remember, he's washing their feet there, and initially Peter don't want anything to do with it. And then when Peter figures out what Jesus is doing, he says, no, wash the whole thing, you know. Give me a bath. And Jesus says, no, no, you're already clean. You don't need to be washed. All you need to do is have your feet washed. Why is that? Because I need to have my feet washed daily to get the stains of the world off me. You're already clean. You already have the Spirit. But it's only as I keep coming to Him and keep drinking of Him that I get my feet washed and I get the crud of the world washed off me. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, that I need to keep coming and keep drinking. See, real life or true life that satisfied is only found in Jesus and nowhere else. And it's only as I keep coming and keep drinking that I will experience this new life, which is really that of being clean. And there's a, I'm clean in one sense, but there's a daily cleaning that I need. And that's what Jesus said. Just, just your feet, Peter. Not the whole thing. Just your feet need to be clean. I want to end with Isaiah again. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah writes, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. And then Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will continually guide you. He will satisfy your desire in scorched and dry places and give you strength to to your bones. And you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water wells up in desert. And it's only as I keep coming to him do I get that food that really satisfies me, in contrast to what the world has and what I spend most of my time on that doesn't satisfy me. Thank you.